Good morning. For our Bible reading this morning, we're going to be going to the book of Luke, and we'll be reading chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down a fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Welcome. It's great to see so many of you here. I want to extend a welcome to those who are joining us digitally online. Uh, it's great to have you participating in this worship service as well with us. Uh, we are jumping back into the Gospel of Luke this morning, and I'm very excited, and I trust that you'll be very encouraged by the time we spend here. If you have a Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62 is going to be our text this morning. Um, I'm going to uh, begin with a bit of a disclaimer. I apologize. I, I didn't have time to make the adult version of my slides. So... Uh, you're going to see slides that look stuff like this, um, you know, little cartoons and, and things on there. So uh, just, just, just be young at heart for a moment, uh, and, uh, you know, we're still trying to get our heads around uh, how to best be prepared uh, for these services. Uh, but it's great to be with you. It's great to be able to, uh, to speak God's Word uh, to you and uh, to open His Word together. And for those of you who are joining us, it's great to have you as well. Uh, the theme that we gave for the first section of our time in the Gospel of Luke was the way of salvation. And that's, that's what the first sort of one-third of Luke is all about. It's about how Jesus came as the Savior, and He shows the way. And we looked at how Luke presents the ministry of Jesus as a ministry that fulfills the promises of God, and He uses images from God's promises and His prophets in the Old Testament. Here in Luke 9, verse 51, we come to a section in the gospel where we are looking at a transition. There's a difference between what's come before and what's going to come for about the next 10 chapters or so in Luke's gospel. And this section we've themed the way of discipleship. And if you want just a short soundbite summary of what this message is all about, it's this, the way of salvation is discipleship. The way of salvation is discipleship. And Luke 9 through up to 19 
is all about that. Scholars have noticed a marked difference between the first third and this middle section, often called the travel narrative. Uh, for instance, where we had lots of miracles before, over the next 10 chapters, you'll only have four miracles. You will, by contrast, have 17 parables from the lips of Jesus. Luke describes Jesus as moving towards Jerusalem, and as he gets closer, the references to Jerusalem keep popping up. But the geography and the locations for Luke are not written in such a way so as to describe a travel journal, which means it's really about the way. It's really about the journey that Jesus is walking with his disciples. And so again, if you need that sort of note in your head, thinking about what's Luke trying to communicate in this, in this whole series of messages, in this whole series of chapters and stories and sayings of Jesus, he's trying to show you that the way to be saved is to be a disciple. But we need to know what a disciple looks like. The uh, message we left with our kids and families this morning was that a disciple is somebody who follows Jesus all the way. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus all the way. And specifically in these verses this morning, we're going to learn what that looks like by considering the purpose of Jesus, number one, the pathway of Jesus, number two, and the priority of Jesus, number three. So if you like alliteration, this is your morning. <laughs> the purpose of Jesus, the pathway of Jesus, and the priority of Jesus. Let's pray as we open God's word together. Father, would you bless us this morning with insight from your spirit to comprehend what Jesus is trying to say and do, even as we look into this word so many hundreds of years later. Lord, we're grateful to be standing this side of the cross, to know the reality and assurance of forgiveness. And I pray that, that the Spirit who's been poured out by the risen Son, Lord, would open our hearts to receive the way of discipleship. Would we walk with you as you take us through your word? Amen. Uh, I want to begin by uh, showing you a picture that if you spent any time on the internet in the last few years, you would have seen this picture. Raise your hand if you, if you recognize this image. Have we seen this image before? Some of you? Some of you? Yeah, <laughs> right? Okay. This is, uh, this is the backdrop of one of the most famous memes uh, that's gone around, and it's it's famous because people can use it to, de to, to describe the process of going one way, but actually having second thoughts and turning your interest into something else. Now, you know this was not a live action shot because the woman on the right is also the woman on the left. <laughs> so this is a pre-planned staged photo and whoever staged it has done a great job because they've captured this idea very well. The idea that you're going one way but your attention is diverted in the other direction. Which is really important because as we jump into this text, this is a text that's all about direction and momentum. Direction and momentum, specifically and initially on the part of Jesus as he journeys to Jerusalem. 
I'm going to read to you from the NIV, but I'm going to, to put into words what's, what's actually there in the original language. Luke 9, verse 51, as the time approached, or as the time neared fulfillment for Jesus to be taken up. Sorry, my slides have gone haywire. If we can go back to the scripture verse, please. 951. As, as the time approached for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That's what the NIV has. Literally, the text says, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. That is an expression, it's an idiom that's used to describe someone who's really intent on something. You set your face. You say, I'm going to run that 100 meters. I'm going to clear those hurdles. By golly, I'm going to get there. <laughs> to set your face means to have determination, to have purpose. And that's exactly what we see from Jesus. But Luke wants to not just note it once, but to keep, keep highlighting it. 52 reads, and he sent messengers, the NIV says, on ahead. Literally, he sent messengers before his face. He sent messengers before his face who went ahead into, some, into, a vill into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because, your NIV says, he was heading to Jerusalem, but Luke writes, because his face was heading for Jerusalem. I'm going to read it back to you. As the time drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face to go into a, a Samaritan village and get things ready. But the people didn't receive him or welcome him there because his face was heading for Jerusalem. Do you get the picture that Luke's trying to paint for you? Jesus has a singular determination and a purpose. It's compelling, isn't it? Have you ever met somebody with that singular determination and purpose? They, there's somebody you want to follow, somebody you, you want to listen to, so, somebody you, you can really get in line with, right? As I was preparing for this message, it brought to mind some of my last moments with a very dearly beloved uh, member of Joanna's family and a member of the community in Burke, her grandfather, Jack Buster. And to give you a picture of, of determination, this man was probably just a few days off of his, his before he died. But he had organized his entire family because he was determined that he was going to make key lime ice cream. He had decided, I, he had a recipe for tequila lime ice cream, and he was going to make it. And, and I'll, I'll never forget the process that was involved. Getting out the ice maker, get, get, getting different family members organized. We all had shifts. We had to come in, and, and part of the shift wasn't just actually taking care of Jack, but part of the shift was, was doing your responsibility with the ice cream. And this man, who's, who's not able to really even sit up in bed, was so focused and so determined he was going to get this ice cream made. And as much as we wanted to say, hey, this isn't important. It was important. And not in a loopy way, but in a way that he had a goal and he was going to achieve it. And it was symbolic of the rest of his life. In fact, it was so important that after I'd finished my shift on a Saturday, I preached on the Sunday morning, 
I got home, I just finished lunch and sat down in the chair for that great post-sermon nap, which is like the best nap ever. And, and I'm sitting there and the phone rings, ring, 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 ring. Hey, Jono. Yep. Hey, Jack. Hey, uh, you got a pen? Yeah. You got some tape? I think I can find some. Yep. Great. Grab the pen, grab the tape, get on over here, and I want you to label whatever you made last night because this sure isn't key lime ice cream. <laughs> Singular determination, focus, right to the very end. It's a humorous story, but it's compelling. Jesus decides he's going to go to Jerusalem. Now, we've been reading through the Psalms of Ascent, and we, we know that this is the place where God said he would establish his throne. He said he would establish his kingdom there. It was his city. It was his people. It was where he was to be worshipped. And the knowledge of God is going to go out from Jerusalem, and that's really important. And Jesus understood this. And so his drive and his determination to face what he already knows will be rejection, suffering, and death comes from his resolve to be obedient to the Father, to fulfill his purpose and the plan of God. Do you and I have that resolve? Do you live your life with a sense of purpose, a purpose that is not just yours, but a purpose that was given to you by God. A sense that this is what he wants from me. A sense that this is what I must be doing, even if it doesn't make sense to everybody else, even if it's going to cause me harm, hurt, or suffering, but this, this is what he has for me. How many problems in our lives come back to the fact that we are vague about our purpose? That we don't understand what we're here to do. Can I tell you, you live in a society that has no idea what its purpose is. In fact, they've just given up. You're not even allowed to talk like that anymore. The fact that you would go to somebody else and say, hey, there's a greater purpose for you. Uh, that's a no-no conversation, isn't it? Uh, who are you to tell me? No, no, no. We've totally punted on this idea. And we've said, you know what? You come up with your purpose. You invent it. And really, our job in society is just to stand there and clap and say, I'm so glad you got what you wanted. Right? Jesus has an understanding of his purpose. His purpose is to bring God's kingdom on earth. And in bringing God's kingdom on earth, he will save his people from their sins. He knows that's what he came to do. I don't know if you caught this, but you can go back, listen to last week, we talked about Psalm 132, and in verse 10, the prayer is, and I hats off to Chris Cullen who pointed this out in Sermon in Scripture, which is a time where, where we as pastors talk about this, uh, the text. He pointed this out, Psalm 132, verse 10, the prayer is, for David's sake, do not turn your face away from your anointed one. The idea that God's anointed is going to come to Jerusalem, and when he comes and he arrives, God, don't turn your face away from him. Accept him. Accept what he's going to do. Jesus is moving with a sense of purpose. 
His purpose is to bring God's kingdom. And for him to bring God's kingdom, it means he's going to take his throne. But his path to the throne is different. So, so we know the purpose of God is, is, excuse me, the purpose of Jesus is to do the will of God, to bring God's kingdom and to take his rightful place. What is the path? The path to the throne. This is where a lot of the disciples got thrown off. And so I present to you verses 52 and following. He sent messengers on ahead. They went into a a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Now, there's a bit of backstory of the history between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans were considered tainted. They were the half-breeds. These were the people who, who were left behind after the, after the Jews were sent into exile, and they intermarried, and they, and, and they got into relationship with the other nations around them. And so, in that kind of mixed sort of half-breed view, they set up their own place of worship. And so, you see this come up in the Gospels from time to time. Jesus is having a conversation with the woman at the well, and she's talking about, well, your people say we're to worship on this mountain in Mount Zion, and, and, and we claim to worship on this other mountain, Mount Gerizim. And sort of this sort of rival people. The tensions were also high because about 100 years earlier, some, some Jewish zealots had gone to Samaria and destroyed their place of worship because it was the false place of worship. So tensions are rife, and in the time of Jesus, people didn't usually go through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. I don't have a map for you, but Jesus is up in Galilee, which is in the north, and Jerusalem is down south, and and it would be natural to travel through Samaria if you were taking the shortest route. But most Jews didn't do that. They just went the long way around because they knew they weren't welcome there, and they didn't have much regard for the Samaritans. But Jesus goes through Samaria, and he sends people ahead of him to prepare things for him. Maybe they were to get the people ready, you know, much like an evangelist or a revivalist would would send people on ahead and sort of get things set up so that when they came to town, there was fanfare, they were ready to go. Maybe it was to make provisions for lodging and accommodation. We don't know. What we do know is, as Luke tells us, that Jesus and his disciples were not welcome there. They did not receive Jesus, and we're actually told why, because he was heading for Jerusalem. So here it is, this, this, this rivalry, this ethnic, religious, cultural divide becomes the occasion for their rejection of Jesus. And the Samaritans say, oh, you're going to Jerusalem. Oh, we see your priorities. Well, we don't need you here. And then we see the disciples' reaction to that. 53, they didn't welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. 54, the disciples, James and John, when they saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Ooh, that's a bit excessive. Gee whiz. You say, might be cool to watch in a Marvel movie, but come on, really? Fire from heaven? Some of you are probably thinking, you know, this is my fear with religion. They're a bunch of hot-headed whack jobs. This is crazy. Can I tell you, I don't think that's what's going on here. Luke, 
who knew his Old Testament very, very well, understood that James and John are bringing their understanding of the history of God's dealing with his people into their current situation. If you go into your Bible and you look into 2 Kings chapter 1, there was a king in Samaria who got sick. And in getting sick, he didn't consult Yahweh, he wanted to consult Baal, the pagan non-deity. And the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and said, go confront the king and say, is there no prophet in Israel that you would consult Baal? It's like praying to Satan. Do you not think God's going to answer you? And so you, so, so you bring out your crystals and your oils and your magic things and you get into the occult practices. Is there no God there that you can consult? So Elijah goes and he confronts him. He confronts the king's men. The king's men go back and they say, hey, Elijah had a stern word for you. The king said, well, fine, I'm going to send 50 commanders and they're going to go to him. So these 50 commanders march out. There's Elijah in the tower. The king, the king's men come out and say, come down from here, man of God. They're holding it over him, the authority. Get down from here. We are coming here to seize you and arrest you. We're here to lord it over you. Elijah calls fire from heaven and it consumes those men the men of the king of Samaria. It happens again. Another 50 commanders come out. Elijah, come down, man of God. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. They get consumed. The third guy comes and he's, he's, he's learned a little bit, right? And he comes and he bows low and he says, please, man of God, I've just been sent here. Don't send fire on me. He comes humbly and reverently, and the Lord says to Elijah, he says, it's okay, go with him. James and John have been watching what Jesus is doing, and the closest parallel you have is Elijah, a man of God, the prophet of God, and in fact, in fact, the prophecies, the most recent prophecies are from Malachi who says that a messenger will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so they have these things in their mind. And Jesus has set his plan and his purpose. They've watched him heal. They've watched him exercise his authority with the Jews. And now they say, hey, they're not going to receive you. Lord, is this when we call down fire? Jesus rebukes them. Hmm. Why would he do that? His path was different. The pathway of Jesus to exaltation, the path to the throne, comes through rejection, condemnation, judgment, suffering, death. That is the path to the exaltation. If we're going to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to know the purpose of Jesus, to restore God's kingdom, to bring his kingdom to the world, and to save souls, to save men and women. But we also need to understand the pathway of Jesus, that he brings his kingdom through suffering, that he would be rejected. And Jesus made no bones about this. When he was talking to his disciples before he left, he said, if they treated me this way, guess what? They're going to treat you this way. If you belong to me, 
this will happen to you. They didn't roll the red carpet out for me. If you're going to walk in my way, if you're going to follow my path, get ready for that. So that you would get Paul a few decades later after Jesus has, has ascended telling the churches that he's planting. He goes back through Galatia and he's exhorting them and he's telling them through many hardships and dangers we will enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul understood this. The pathway of Jesus is suffering because it's a pathway of grace. It's a pathway of mercy. Jesus didn't need to flex on them. <laughs> he leaves the Samaritans alone. He gives them time to process what's going on around them. And so he withholds the judgment of fire because his path is the way of love and mercy. That's the way that he will become exalted. That's the way that he will become king. And what do we get later? Later in this gospel, we have two Samaritans for whom the kingdom light is beginning to dawn. One is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Another is in a grateful leper. And what do you have in Acts chapter 8? You have the gospel going to Samaria. God being patient to give them a chance again to receive Jesus. Even if they weren't ready his first time through. Sometimes as Christians, we, we, we feel like we finally know the answer. We finally got it right. We got the key to the test. And, and now that we know the answer, now that we have the truth, we're saying it's up to us to enforce the truth. But there's a fine line between proclaiming the truth and enforcing the truth. Footnote, the Crusades. <laughs> Jesus' path to the throne was a path of rejection, a path of suffering, a path of exaltation. Are you ready for that? Have you accepted that that's a part of your discipleship? I'm going to tell you where this pushes. This pushes us in ways where we are tempted to define our worth by our external success. If we define our worth by our, by our external success, by making our way in the world, this is going to be a challenge because the pathway of discipleship is rejection. And seldom, if ever, in the history of God's people do you find the faithful ones celebrated and exalted for their faithfulness to God swimming in wealth and riches and success. So if we're tempted to define our worth, our identity, who we are, God's relationship with us, based on the external success that we're experiencing, then this is gonna hit us really hard. And you're gonna need to remember that purpose because you're gonna need to push through in the path of Jesus. With verse 57, we, we transition from Jesus and his direction and his, his orientation to those who are with him. And we have these sort of three staccato 
abrupt accounts, you know, just sort of bang, bang, bang. Three interactions in verses 57 to 62. And each of these interactions has to do with who's going to join Jesus? Who wants, to, who wants to be a part of this journey with him? The first and the third are people coming to Jesus. And the middle one is Jesus inviting somebody to come to him. And it's really three potential disciples. And having looked at the purpose of Jesus to bring the kingdom, having looked at the pathway of Jesus, that that, that kingship comes through rejection and suffering and ultimately exaltation and resurrection. Now we come to see in these interactions what's the priority of Jesus. Follow with me. Verse 57. Once Jesus and those who were with him were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you no matter where you go. He said, this is noble. This is somebody with no agenda. I don't need to be anywhere, Jesus. I just want to be where you are. Somebody wrote a song like that, didn't they? It sounds like a good sort of <laughs> contemporary Christian song. I don't, want to, I don't care where I go, Jesus, I want to be where you are. Right? And they all got on their knees and bowed and raised their hands and said, yeah, 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 beautiful. <laughs> he doesn't have an agenda for Jesus. But look what Jesus says. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm glad you don't have an agenda. Does it matter if you're comfortable? You see, it's one thing to say, I'll go wherever it takes me. We'll walk the path wherever you want to go, Jesus. But Jesus says, but actually this isn't a path of comfort. This isn't a path of calling anything my own. And so, for those who've been brought into discipleship, trying to kind of crowbar the Lord (laughs) into giving you nice things and saying, well, Lord, now that I'm wearing your colors, now now that I got your jersey on, surely, surely I'm on the winning side. I know that. I've read my Bible. I've read Revelation. I know we win. Um, So... I'm expecting to enjoy the comforts of that. But Jesus says this way of discipleship, it's not, it's not a way of permanence. It's, it's, it's not a way of, of being able to be tied down to this specific place. There is a place that he's preparing for his disciples, absolutely. But on the journey, on the road, there isn't. In verse 59, we read, Jesus said to another man, follow me. Now here, Jesus initiates the conversation. He calls the person and says, follow me. Jesus said to him, let dead people bury their own dead. Oh, excuse me. The man replied, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let dead people bury their own dead. You go and tell others about God's kingdom. Chris Cullen quipped, does this mean I can't be in the funeral business? <laughs> kind of an odd saying, isn't it? Follow me. First let me go bury my father. 
It's an invitation from Jesus. But the man's response is, or the woman's response, we're not told if it's a man or a woman. The disciple's response, potential disciple's response is, yes, but hold on. It's calling to mind the question of allegiances. In the phrase, let me go and bury my father, what the man is saying is he's replying that there is, there is an understanding that he is obliged to his parents' requests, that he needs to honor his father and he needs to wait for his father to go because he needs to serve his father right now. And even though in our culture today, we might not have such strong bonds with our parents of, of obligation, although you could perhaps argue it expresses itself in different ways, it's not hard for us to think about the relationships that order our lives. So it's a question of allegiance. Jesus says, let dead people bury their own dead. You go and tell others about God's kingdom. There's a new priority here. I was reminded this week that it was the Spirit's testimony to me from these verses that led me here to Australia. In case I haven't told you the story, allow me to just tell you a bit of my story. I finished seminary. The Lord blessed us with two children, but not much money. We were living in my parents' house. I had a job working commission sales, which basically means they only pay you when you sell something. And what I was selling was lighting fixtures over the internet. So just imagine yourself at the computer and you're thinking, you know, I could use a new table lamp. And you're browsing away and you open up the chat bar and you say, oh, I want to know how big can I get that shade? You can click a button and I'll pick up the phone. And I'd say, tell me about your room. Let me talk you through your purchase. That's what I was doing. I was given the East Coast shift which meant I was up at 5 a.m. and there wasn't any more room in my parents' house, so we were in the garage. I had my desk set up in the garage. California has lovely weather, so it wasn't too hot or too cold. And I was there two years post-seminary and I was, I'd come to the end. And I remembered kind of having a whinge to the Lord and saying, what was all that for? Like four years, thousands and thousands of dollars, I'd applied for jobs, I didn't get them. What's going on? And I kind of just sort of lulled myself into this stupor. And going through the motions, reading the word that morning, it, this passage popped up and the words that Jesus said to that man hit me right between the eyes. Let the dead bury their own dead, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And what I heard the Spirit impressing upon me that morning was, Jonathan, my voice is not your highest allegiance. You really care what your parents think about you. You want their approval. You need their approval. And as if the Lord said, before we're going to do anything, Jonathan, we're going to sort this out. 
Now, I don't think my parents are spiritually dead. (laughs) But the point was clear. If the Lord is calling you, you must respond. He's not going to wait for it to conveniently slot into your life. He's not, he's not saying, you know, wait till you get a gap in your schedule and, you know, get your house all set up and established first and, you know, make sure you get your little nuclear family all tidy and get all this and then, then come and then go serve the Lord and it'll be great. You have this nice little foundation to work with. No. Jesus brooks no rivals. If you will serve me, if you will follow me in this way of discipleship, I'm your number one allegiance. You do what I say. I don't know if that story meant anything for you, but at the very least you could hear a little bit of the way the Lord worked in my life. We're supposed to testify to that to one another. The third encounter comes verses 61 to 62. Uh, Still another person said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. This guy's a little more ready to go. He's not not playing the long game with Jesus. He's he's ready to go. But he he just needs to make sure things are cool with everybody else when he leaves. So he wants to go back and say his farewells. And Jesus can come off even a little bit harsh here. Verse 62, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, if you're gonna jump into my path and you're gonna follow me on this, on this way as a disciple, you don't have time to worry about what's behind you. You need to go now. You can't, have, you can't be in two minds. You can't look in two directions at the same time. Your heart has to be undivided. You need to be resolved because Jesus is resolved. And these are the disciples that he's looking for. So as we said to the kids this morning, you gotta choose to love God's kingdom. A disciple is someone who's decided that. They've decided, you know what? I don't want an earthly kingdom. I want the kingdom of heaven. I want the kingdom where God rules and reigns. I want want that to be where I belong. We need to be resolved. We need to choose to follow Jesus' direction that, that I take his path. Not the one that's comfortable or convenient. And we make the choice to choose Jesus as king. And in doing this, this is how disciples are people who follow Jesus all the way. Now, what's beautiful is Jesus doesn't expect everyone to get it at this point in time. Even his own disciples don't fully get it. There's so much they have to learn. But he's establishing for them the priority the priority of the kingdom. Now, before we leave this section, you need to see something that's going on that's really important. We've already had in verses 51 to 56 this allusion to 
fire being called down from heaven. And it gives us a hint that the disciples are seeing Jesus as an Elijah, one who's powerfully revealing God and his kingdom. But here in verses 57 to 62, Luke is pulling out the same tones, the same story, but more closely referenced to Elijah and Elisha. Elisha was Elijah's successor. He was the prophet who would come after him. And there's so many parallels. The word for being taken up, verse 51, it's the only time it appears in the New Testament. Being taken up. The, one of the few other places it occurs is in the Old Testament when it refers to Elijah being raised into heaven. Again, another echo that they were seeing Jesus as an Elijah in this. But here in 57 to, to 60, there's sort of two, two things that are, that are interplay. When, when Elijah the prophet was cowering, running away from Jezebel in fear, when God sent him and restored him, the first thing he did was he sent him to Elisha. And as Elijah is going through the field, he sees this man Elisha who is plowing. And Elijah says, paraphrasing here, come, come with me. Elisha's response is, first let me go back. Let me go back to my parents. Let me go, go, go back and, and, and get this situation sorted. I'm doing a job right now. I'm providing for the family. I'm plowing the field. Can't you see, Elijah, what I'm doing? Elijah's response to that was, wasn't exactly begging or pleading. It was sort of, well, if that's what you're going to do, go ahead and do it. <laughs> As if to imply, I'm going to keep going. But something changes because Elijah takes the oxen and he slaughters it. And he takes the wood from the plow and he turns it into an altar. And he makes a sacrifice right there. And he makes a decision right there in that moment that he is going to devote his life in the worship and service of God. And he begins to follow Elijah. The rest of Elijah's ministry, he is being followed by Elisha. All the way up to the very end, when Elijah knows that his time is drawing near, and God sends him, sends him to Bethel, then he sends him to Jericho, then he sends him to the Jordan, and all the while, Elisha is saying, I'm going to go with you. And Elijah's saying, you can't come with me. Elijah's saying, I'm going to go. I got to keep going. And finally, when he gets to the Jordan, Elisha says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Do you see the motif that Luke is creating here? If Jesus is the man of God, but not simply God's prophet, but God's king, the disciples are painted in brushstrokes of Elisha. And I was thinking, you know, we used to sing that song, you know, these are the days of Elijah. 
We probably should be singing, these are the days of Elisha. (laughs) Because after Jesus is taken up, what happens next? The fullness of his spirit is poured out. You see, being a disciple of Jesus is a tremendous privilege. It puts you in the kingdom. It puts you in the path of the king himself, who's full of grace and mercy. But it demands a priority. But the glory and the joy in that priority is that God is ruling in you, in your life. And that you share in his spirit that you know and can commune with God himself. So when you see this question, are you a disciple of Jesus? Don't be thinking simply about the hardship. Think about the glory of what you're being invited into. Think about what it means to share in the spirit of Jesus. Think about what it means to be adopted into the family of God, to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be be the ones that God is using here and now to extend his good and gracious reign. But maybe some of us need to remember this picture this morning. (laughs) It's well and good to hold Jesus' hand. (laughs) But if our eyes are elsewhere, when the obstacles come, we're not going to be able to navigate them. When the cost of discipleship needs to be paid, we're not going to be ready to to, to be humbled and endure it. And I want to finish with this this very simple, (laughs) I told you you'd get some cartoons in here. It's a very, very, very simple principle. What your heart loves, your eyes will look upon. And where your eyes are looking, your hands and feet will follow. When I learned to drive, they said, put your hands at 10 and 2. And they said, but don't look at your hands when you drive. Look at the road. Look at where you're going. And you say, well, but I don't know what to do with my hands. No, 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 no. Your hands will follow your eyes. Your hands will follow your eyes. If your eyes are on the Lord Jesus, your life will be conformed to him. You will move with him. You will go with him. You'll be sustained by him. You will be ready to receive what he has. And you will go all the way. And if our eyes aren't on him, then we need to run the equation the other way. We need to say, what's my heart loving? What's my heart craving right now? And ask yourself, where is God's purpose for me in the midst of this thing that I'm loving? Let's pray. Father, we realize the call of discipleship is great and it's very difficult. Lord, many of us have stumbled and fallen. 
Lord, for those who, who are fearful that your love for them is contingent upon their ability to perform. I pray you free them and liberate them from that. But Lord, I equally pray for those who, who would treat you lightly and who would disregard your word and your kingdom, that they would be stirred to a great devotion. Lord, may Windsor District Baptist Church be a church that makes disciples that shows people the glory of Jesus and teaches them his words and his ways that they can walk in them. And Lord, may we know the certainty of the promise that you are with us always, even unto the end of the age. Thank you that even though it's difficult, Lord, this is the way of salvation. That it's been opened for us. We celebrate you today, God. In your name we pray, amen.